So as many of you know, the, uh, one of the main drivers of uh, this conference um, is to break down sort of these made up walls that exist among various specialties within, subspecialties within critical care and locations where that care is being provided, whether it be the ED, the OR, the SICU, MICU, NeuroICU, et cetera. Um, and uh, so I think this particular lecture is very uh, relevant to that idea. Uh, so we know that traditional coagulation measures insufficiently assess the risk of bleeding. You know, we, you have end-stage liver patients on the floor getting clots, for example, one of many examples. Um, well, a more physiologic assessment of bleeding does exist, and, and it's commonly used in the operating rooms. And, um, you know, we frequently use these in, in cardiac surgery cases, but, you know, as soon as that cardiac surgery patient arrives in the ICU, we're back to the traditional measures of coagulation assessments. And, it, and in my mind, it just doesn't entirely make sense. You know, that's why I thought Dr. Tanaka, uh, bringing him to here today would be a, a, you know, a perfect um, example of, of one area that can help us um, you know, use logic when we're um, assessing somebody's bleeding risks. So just to give you a little background, Dr. Tanaka, he, uh, had his medical training at, at Kyo University in Japan, came to Emory where he got his master's of uh, science. Uh, he he uh, uh, trained um, in residency in both Japan, at, um, in New York, Beth Israel, and did his uh, further residency at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and then his uh, fellowship in uh, cardiothoracic anesthesia at Emory, um, as well as um, you know, staying on at Emory for a number of years on faculty. He, following his time at Emory, went to UPMC, where he was, you know, continued a very successful career. He's won multiple awards in education at um, Emory and at, at Pittsburgh, which have included the Best Mentor Award in Cardiothoracic Surgery, Excellence in Teaching. He's a member of the editorial board of a variety of cardiothoracic um, anesthesia journals. He has uh, over 100 peer review articles, mostly focusing on abnormalities of coagulation. And kind of embarrassingly for me, he's probably written more books over the past few years than I've read. So <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Dr. Tanaka. All right. Thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's a great, great pleasure to be here. So uh, I'm usually in a GOR taking care of my uh, cardiac surgical patients. So, you know, this is my uh, new audience today. So uh, let's start with a conflict of interest. There are a few companies they are supporting either my research or I'm on the uh, uh, adjudication board for some of the studies, but they have no input uh, in this lecture today. So objectives today, there are three folds. First is to review the conventional transfusion approach and then understand uh, two different systems, viscoelastic coagulation tests that are available at this medical center, TAG and ROTEM. And lastly, to go over a few cases that might be of interest to you as well, although these are cardiac surgical cases. So if you look at the coagulation cascade or any coagulation blood management textbook, you get you know, this type of picture. It's overwhelming, it's so complex. 
And if you are trying to stop bleeding at 2 a.m. in the morning, this type of cascade or scheme does not really help you at all. So what we do is basically P words of transfusion. First is a packed red blood cells. Next is plasma, PT or PTT, and lastly platelets. So these are P words approach. And that's exactly what we used to do up until maybe about two years ago. So we get coagulopathic patient, we send a platelet count, PT, PTT, you get the result back after cardiopulmonary bypass is done. Then we actually do transfuse platelets and plasma to these patients. But when you think about, you know, you travel to a different places, you know, if you fly out of BWI, if you go to Atlanta, it's about, you know, 90 minutes. So you don't have to really prepare yourself. You can go there, you know, use just a backpack. Now you go to San Diego, you may get one suitcase and you may spend one week. But if you want to go to Narita, for example, you may actually get two suitcases. You get more preparation, and you, you spend 12 hours to get there, and you do sight, you know, some sightseeings, so you plan ahead. But in the blood management in complex cardiac surgery, that has not been in the case you know, for the past many years. So, you know, if you look at the subway map in Tokyo, once you get to the Narita airport, it's overwhelming, of course. But if you know the destination, for example, this is a, uh, probably two hours from Narita airport, it's a Tsukiji fish market, and you see familiar face of this uh, cardiac surgeon, you know, after 14 hours of flight, if he looks like this, I'll say that's pretty good. All right, so uh, <laughs> let me just describe a case for you. So this is a 71-year-old, 45-kilogram female come, you know, who came in for Taipei dissection. So bypass time was 5 hours, 22 minutes, so you could actually go to San Diego during this time. So very long, complex case, deep hypothalamic secretory arrest. So this is what they did. So during cardiopulmonary bypass, they gave three units of red cells, and they gave protamine. ACT comes back 142 seconds, slightly elevated, but that's not too bad. But patient seems to have coagulopathy, so they started to uh, give multiple units of products. At the same time, they sent a baseline coag you know, at the end of the bypass, which came back as INR4, platelet count 38,578. And this is what happens after that. So this is a 45 kilogram female. So plasma volume is about 1.8 liters. Now they started with cryo followed by two platelets and red cells and a bunch of four more red cells. So that's almost her circulating plasma volume. And then they ended up giving some more FFP. And then at that point, she receives 20, uh, 2.5 liters of fluid just for transfusion. And then she goes into right heart failure. So they decide to uh, put an ECMO on this patient. They stabilize her, but she keeps bleeding after that. So multiple, multiple units of products and then at the end of the day, they give uh, two milligrams of uh, factor seven, 
patient still bleeding, and next morning she comes back for a re-exploration for bleeding. So probably over 12 hours of transfusion, what do we get at the end? We of course get the bill for that, you know, 10 units of red cell, bunch of cryo FFP and platelets, and of course Novo 7 as a course, you get 16,000 uh, spent on this particular patient. But not just that, she came back for the surgery and she received nine liters of fluid overnight. So she continued to suffer from these consequences. So what we have been doing in the past, this is a famous Mayo Clinic protocol. What we do is basically sequential treatment. When you send a coagulation test, usually platelet count comes back first. So you do respond to that platelet count. Then you get a PT and PTT. You actually start treating PT and PTT. Then you get a fibrinogen level. And at the end of the day, you actually get cryoprecipitate. So it's almost always platelet FFP and cryoprecipitate. That's a sequence of what we do. And they actually follow the time they require to do these tests in a central laboratory. So the cost of re-exploration in one study back in 2012, they estimated 15,000. So if you add 16,000 and 15,000, basically you spend 30,000 for the bleeding complication in this single patient. All right, so let's talk about tag thromboelastography and thromboelastometry. These are the uh, pictures from uh, Pittsburgh, you know, Pittsburgh system. They use tag. We were actually studying uh, some of the patient using Rotem. So Rotem there is only for research use only. But at this medical center, cardiac surgical patient can get the Rotem assessment during the surgery. We only have one machine right now, so we don't have a capacity to offer this service you know, outside the cardiac surgery arena. So what do we get from a viscoelastic coagulation testing? It's pretty simple. It's an onset of clotting in the whole blood, and we look at the strength of the clot. That's called amplitude at 10 minutes, or maximum clot firmness. That's also called maximum amplitude in the tag system. We also have, you know, can look at the stability. So if there's a systemic fibrolysis, clot breaks down over 34 minutes, and you can see the clot signal goes down, that's a sign of systemic fibrolysis. So we get the three information, onset, strength, and stability. All right, so let's look at the clot stability. This is the baseline normal picture. So you have a very, you know, reasonable clot firmness. Now, if you add TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, to this whole blood, it takes time, you know, maybe about 35 minutes, 45 minutes to start the clot lysis, and then complete lysis occurs in about 60 to 80 minutes. So you have a very stable, you know, reasonable clot here. But if you have a hemodilution, so this is an in vitro hemodilution, but what you can see is you see a delayed onset of clot formation and then you have a reduced clot firmness. So delayed onset and then reduced clot firmness, so much weaker clot. And if you challenge this clot with a TPA, 
you have a complete fiber analysis within 10 minutes. So you can clearly see if you stress the patient, you know, and then hemodilute the patient at the same time, you have a massive release of a tissue plasminogen activator from uh, endothelial cells, and you can see the clot breaks down very rapidly, and that's one of the reasons that uh, tranexamic acid or aminocaproic acid can be useful in this type of patient. So let's go over the difference between, some of the difference between uh, TEG and Rotem system. So what we use here in the cardiac room is XTEM and FIPTEM. Those two assays are basically activated by extrinsic pathway, tissue factor, and uh, heparin is neutralized by something called polybrine. So reagent contains heparinase, so we do not have to specify you know, neutralizing heparin during the cardiopulmonary bypass. Now, aptem is specifically to look at the plasmin formation or systemic fibrolysis, and intem and heptem, they are available to look at the residual heparin or circulating heparin effect, but we do not use it because we have a specific ACT system called HEPCON to look at the heparin concentration. So we only use XTEM and FIPTEM. Now, the uh, TEG system, this is very interesting because TEG system always have intrinsic activation. It's a contact activator that is kaolin. So although you may have heard about rapid TEG, which is partially dependent on tissue factor extrinsic pathway, but that actually has both activators in it, all right? So that is different from XTEM, which only has tissue factor. And also the difference is that those assays do not contain heparinase type reagent, so you really have to specify whether you want to neutralize heparin or not. So those are the key differences between the two systems. So let's look at the alpha angle. I think conventional tech teaching is that you look at the angle, and if you have low angle, you have to give fibrinogen. <coughs> So if you compare these two, top and bottom, you know, they have a very similar angle, and you have to decide whether you're gonna give cryoprecipitate. I know that this clot, you know, firmness is not that strong, so I wanna do something, but whether I should give platelets or cryoprecipitate. You know, I used to, you know, wonder how I can decide this because I was using TEG and we only had a single tracing and I really, you know, had a difficulty interpreting it. But now that uh, Rotem system offers FIFTEM, uh, you can actually look at the fibrin-specific clot formation. So on the top one, you have fibrin-specific clot, which is nine millimeter, which is pretty reasonable. So in this case, if patient bleeding, you can actually get platelets. But in this one, at the bottom, Clot firmness from fibrin formation is pretty weak, so I'd rather give cryoprecipitate in this particular patient. So you can actually differentiate whether you're gonna give platelet first or cryoprecipitate first. So just go over the fibrin-only clot. This is the system, tag wrote and pretty similar, slight difference. But you know, if you have a cup and pin, platelets uh, in between these fibrin fibers, by having a uh, cytocalacin D, that is a reagent for FIPTEM, essentially you cut these platelets out of this fibrin clot formation and you get the fibrin specific clot. And that's what, how we assess 
fibrinogen changes during cardiac surgery. So this is what happens during cardiac surgery. Most of the patients have a normal fifteen values, and during the cardiopulmonary bypass, you get certain degree of hemodilution. So this goes down, maybe forty to fifty percent for the most part, and then gradually goes up. And in the ICU, often patient with low fifteen gets cryoprecipitate, so it actually goes up slightly there. All right. So now, if you compare. Laboratory fibrinogen level and then fifteen A ten, there's a reasonable correlation between fifteen A ten and then fibrinogen and A ten of ten millimeter. That's a ten minute amplitude from the onset of the clot formation is actually two hundred. So I do use A ten as a guide uh, for fibrinogen replacement. And why do I pick A ten of ten? This is one of the reasons those who receive more than five units of a red cell after cardiac surgery. This is a 4,600 patient data from Canada. You can really see exponential increase in red cell requirement after fibrinogen goes below 200 milligram deciliter after cardiopulmonary bypass. So that is a reason for us to use this threshold to replete. Uh, you know, fibrinogen by giving cryoprecipitate. So this is what we use as a guide to do the bleeding management at two o'clock in the morning. We pick three numbers: that's ten, forty, and eighty. So we do not have to remember anything about PT, PTT, or platelet uh, threshold. So what we do here is initially look at the fibtem A10. So if A10 is less than ten. We think about cryoprecipitate, and after we look at the fifteen and it's normal, then look at the extem A10. That's ten-minute amplitude on the extem side. That will guide us about a platelet transfusion. So if they're less than forty, and then fibrinogen is normal, give platelets. And lastly, we look at the CT clotting time. That's the duration for the onset of clot formation. If it's more than eighty. We think about giving plasma transfusion. If it's a case of a warfarin uh, anticoagulation, we give prothrombin complex concentrate based on this number. So these are three numbers, and these are management. So cryoplatelets <coughs> and plasma. So we actually do reverse way of say Mayo traditional transfusion management. We start looking at the you know cryo first. So uh, heparin effect, you know, there are some heparin effect for, but for the most part, extem and fibtem can neutralize therapeutic levels of heparin during cardiopulmonary bypass, and intem is very sensitive to heparin, so you can actually detect a very small amount of heparin uh, during uh, ECMO or any type of uh, cardiac procedure. And a heparin acetate can neutralize up to six units per cc heparin, so that can be used during the cardiopulmonary bypass or ECMO. But you really have to specify that. All right. So case number two. This is a young patient, 45 kilo female, cystic fibrosis, normal INR, anti-tenev 0.1, anti-thrombin level was 48%, and she was on ECMO for many days before surgery. So uh, we actually ended up giving uh, multiple units of antithrombin to replete antithrombin level to achieve therapeutic ACTs with unfractionated heparin for cardiopulmonary bypass. 
and she was already anemic to start, so she ended up getting uh, eight units of red cells during the uh, first three hours of cardiopulmonary bypass. All right, so this is a baseline, so you can see uh, XTEM clotting time is normal, right? XTEM A10 is normal, so eight, less than 80, and more than 40, and then if you look at the FIBTEM, she has huge uh, FIBTEM A10, so this really tells you that she is in highly inflammatory state, pro-inflammatory state increases fibrinogen. So she had a massive amount of fibrinogen, probably 600-700 milligram per deciliter. I did not measure it, but it's probably very high. But look at the first hour tracing during cardiopulmonary bypass. She is a small patient, so she gets massive hemodilution during even the first hour of cardiopulmonary bypass. So this is like almost 76 to 70 percent drop uh, in the FIPTEM. So this really tells me she's getting into trouble. So during the first hour of cardiopulmonary bypass, I do know the direction. So I keep looking. I do not do anything in the beginning. So this is the third hour and you actually hit FIPTEM A10 of five millimeters. So I have to remind you that she was deficient in antithrombin-3. So if you get hemodilution, antithrombin will keep going down. So that means that even if you're giving heparin, anticoagulation may not work during the prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass, and therefore at the end, you may develop DIC. So at this point, I do not want fifth and may tend to go down any farther, I intervened. So that is six units of plasma, and what we could do during cardiopulmonary bypass, we can cheat. So what we do is just give it through the pump, and then perfusionists can hemoconcentrate and take the water out. So free water comes out, plasma gets more concentrated, and the patient's factor level actually starts to go up. And that's actually what we observe from five millimeter to seven millimeter. If you just give two or three FFP to your patient, this will not go up because FFP is not really concentrated. So it's very difficult to get FIFTEM up just using uh, fresh frozen plasma. And then you can also see XM clotting time, 148 seconds, success FFP, you almost normalize XM clotting time at this point. So the total pump time is almost five hours. We ended up giving 150 of uh, protamine. Most of the red cells and fresh frozen plasma were given during cardiopulmonary bypass. We gave four uh, platelets and cryo after the bypass, and this is what we saw at the end. So by the time you give these few products, she completely normalized thromboelastometry tracing, and although they, this seems to be a little bit off, but she did not bleed at all. So she actually was fine you know, with this tracing. So this system really helps me to stay on top of the game you know, before going to this massive DIC after five hours of cardiopulmonary bypass. So a Rotem-based approach is more focused on FIPTEM, and I do use a baseline FIPTEM as a reference point for the fibrinogen, and by following fibrinogen level, I can look at the hemodilution, extent of hemodilution, or blood loss during the surgery. 
And the coagulation trajectory, so DIC state, can be really corrected by using appropriate amount of uh, uh, plasma during cardiopulmonary bypass along with hemoconcentration. Uh, hemo and that also maintains antithrombin in plasma, so that actually helps keep the heparin working throughout the case. All right, so the cost of this uh, intervention is not too bad, 12,000 compared to the 16,000 in bleeding, this is much better cost, all right? So I have one question for you. So one unit of plasma, how much factor increase can you expect in a patient, uh, 70 kilo patient? Who think uh, it's 10% increase per FFP? Can you raise your hand? All right, how about 5%? No? Few people, all right, how about three? All right, majority, one. All right, I guess majority, three, and answer is three. So you guys are good, you guys are good. So this is an example of a plasma transfusion in a patient who was going for TAVR, INR 3.8, uh, XTEM CT is prolonged, as you can see. So this is similar to INR. So then you give four FFP, INR 2.4, XM CT is too prolonged. So you can see reasonable correlation. And what happened to this patient, you remember that INR and factor levels are not linear, right? It's a curvilinear. So at the high level of INR, small change in the factor level will drop <coughs> INR significantly. But once you hit, say, below two level, it takes much more FFP or factor increase to reach a normalized INR, all right? So this is what happened. In this patient, INR is about 3.8, so about 12% factor level, right? Now it's 2.4, so you actually reached about 25% level, so there's about 10 to 12% increase after four units of FFP. So this actually you know, shows good example how FFP works in these patients. So about 10%, so 3 to, you know, 3% per unit is a reasonable estimate. All right, so what's the difference between TEG and Rotem? This is something everybody wants to know. So I just wanna show you one example. This is not to mean that TEG is, you know, by any means inferior to the Rotem. You just have to understand how to use it. All right, so this is a study, 100 patients on Wolfram compared kaolin TEG and then extend, all right? So they looked at the ability to detect INR more than 1.2, and those patients had a median INR of 2.4, fibrinogen was normal, 320. All right, so this is the extent pattern. So above 1.2, you see the increase, and you actually see the reasonable <coughs> linear increase according to the INR level. Above two, above three, you see an increase. So this is reasonable. Now, if you look at the Kelvin tag, this is what you see. Between up to two and two to three, there's a minimal difference, all right? So this, this is the area where you want to titrate plasma or prothrombin complex concentrate, but it's, it is very difficult to use Kelvin TG itself to guide that therapy. You still have to do PTINR to you know, titrate FFP or plasma, uh, PCC, right? The other issue is that XTEM. 
the scatter is pretty good. There's one outlier, but if you look at the KL intake, there are more outliers, about six, seven outliers right there. And then if you look at the time to detect the drug effect, this is a three minute line. So all the results come in within three minutes. All right, so once you bring it to the, you know, this satellite lab, we actually get the result within five, 10 minutes. So I have an answer. But if you send it to the central lab at three minute point, they probably don't even run it. And you know, it takes at least 20 minutes or sometimes 40 to 60 minutes to get the result. This is an issue. That is why I prefer using XTEM in my patient because there are a lot, you know, a lot of warfarin treated patients coming for LVAD replacement or transplant. And this is the very reason I prefer Rotem system. All right, just to summarize a point, contact activated tests such as ACT, PTT are less sensitive to a vitamin K dependent factor deficiencies. And this is similar to hemodilution state. And that's one of, you know, there's a, there's a reason for it. The reason is that in the stress, you have a release factor eight and von Willebrand factor. And of course, factor eight is a con contact system factor. So that shortens ACT and PTT. And that makes the older, you know, contact test less sensitive to uh, hemodilution and blood loss. All right. So this is the last case. I can finish this up. This is a 65-year-old, 94-kilo elder placed previously, now coming for a heart transplant. INR is 3.0. So you can see the warfarin effect on the prolonged clotting time on the XTEM. Antisomine 3 is 96%, completely normal. You can see a pro-inflammatory state, 500 is high, probably due to LVAD placement. Uh, lab test is also showing that same effect, right? So this is INR3, so bleeding risk is a little bit high. So we decided to intervene, and we decided to give a partial dose of prothrombin complex concentrate, that is 520 units. We knew that this won't fix his INR, but uh, we just looked at after the dosing, five minutes later, we did a test. There's a significant decrease in the clotting time on the X-stem. And, you know, we didn't tell this to the surgeon, and surgeon started to operate, and they never complained. So I actually did not give any further dose, right? So only a small dose of PCC. Now we go on bypass, and two hours after bypass, there's, uh, there's blood loss and hemodilution, so you can see another prolongation of clotting time on the XTEM. You can see it on the FIPTEM. 500 didn't go down that much. Then two and a half hours, basically the similar, more hemodilution on FIPTEM side. So we came off bypass. We decided to give, uh, say, 15 units per kilodose. This is a less than usual dose that you give for uh, full warfarin reversal, that is 25 to 35 units. And we just gave that dose, and then the Rotem came back 111 seconds. FIPTEM is reasonable. And we, since we saw that patient was still woozy, we actually added 50 more. And since bypass time was really prolonged, we gave a two-plate and a cryo. But you can see after that, XTEM is completely normal. FIPTEM is also reasonable.
all right, and the patient did not bleed. So what we did here is uh, completely free of ratio. We did not think about red cell plasma ratio. We just targeted where it has to be fixed, all right? And we can also do partial INR correction because the result comes back fast and we can actually react to that. So that really helps. So turnaround time in a coagulation test is really important. And lastly, uh, platelets are given because that's one of the you know, caveat of just using a Rotem. It doesn't not really give you a platelet function per se, you know, ADP-induced aggregation. So sometimes you have to use a clinical judgment. And of, of course, the you know, factor 5 may be low. That may not be quite well reflected in uh, extent prolongation. So we also thought platelet might provide some factor 5, which helps coagulation at the end. So the cost of the products in this particular patient was just few cryo and platelets and PCC, and it's only $4,500. And you can see red cell and FFP ratio was one to one, but it's zero to zero. So this is a very good case. And this dose, total dose of PCC was 28. So that's almost the standard dose of PCC. But the way we gave it, it was a titration, not just a single dose up front. If you give single dose up front, what happens is patient will have hemodilution. So you end up giving more PCC or FFP at the end. So this method actually works pretty well. All right, so limitations of Rotem. As I mentioned, you cannot detect plated adhesion aggregation. So von Willebrand factor P2Y12 inhibitors, thromboxane uh, inhibitors, they cannot be detected. The DOAX are new oral anticoagulants. There are data, and we have seen the prolongation of extem clotting time, but data are not robust. All right? And these tests are not really sensitive to congenital or hereditary thrombophilias, including factor V Leiden, protein C, S deficiency, or antithrombin 3 deficiency. And lastly, the hematocrit can affect the result if you have really low hematocrit. The signal tends to be bigger because you have more plasma fraction inside the whole blood. So that gives you higher signal to these patients. So uh, what's the evidence? This is the recent data from Canada. They looked at the 7,000 patient before and after Rotem implementation. 3,800 patients were treated with Rotem, and they actually showed the decrease in the use of red cells and platelets. Plasma usage was borderline decrease, and cryo actually seems to have increased slightly, but major bleeding was really decreased uh, according to this study. One caveat is that uh, there's a variability. Of course, we see variability in anything. But uh, you know, if you look at the different institutions, you can see some institutions use lots of platelets, 30%, you know, 40%. And this change, they seem to be more consistent on platelet side. But if you look at the plasma side, there are a few institutions who actually increase the plasma usage after the Rotem implementation. So I think impact of this type of monitor is a practice dependent, you know, user dependent. And so, you know, in our case, perfusion technique really helps to reduce the blood transfusion. And that's one of the important points I want to make. 
All right, so the future directions, there are some platelet modules which can be attached to the conventional Rotem system. And there's also a one FDA study coming up will be one of the site. And that's a completely automated system similar to Verify Now. You can just put the you know, blue top tube and the whole system will basically draw the blood into this preset uh, cup and pin. And you can see all the reagents, uh, sugar-coated bees. And this system is a complete uh, you know, automation, so you don't have to do anything. You, know, you guys can actually run this test in CCLU or in, even in ICU. All right, so my conclusion is that the fibrin polymerization is a really key endpoint of hemostasis. And the following FIPTEM changes allow us to um, look at the blood loss and hemodilution in real time, almost real time. And lastly, I think titration of hemostatic agents are really important. And a fast turnaround time really helps us to achieve that. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, a question in regard to the applicability of these thromboelastic um, tests towards massive hemorrhage. And the, I'm wondering if you could comment on the usefulness of acquiring this test in the midst of massive transfusion. Because you know, sometimes we think that, oh, what we're actually testing is the donor blood in the patient. But is there, you know, is there a reason to think that it actually accurately reflects our patient's coagulopathy during massive transfusion? Okay, so the question was whether this type of system can be used in a massive transfusion setting. So I, I think the answer is partial yes. You know, when you are losing a lot of volume, say even in a surgical setting, you know, you can run this test, but by the time you get the result, even 10 minutes or five minutes later, that might be a totally different situation. So that is a limitation. But you know, during that time, I would still, you know, I would agree that one-to-one uh, -one ratio transfusion may be you know, helpful to maintain it. But once you control surgical issues, you can immediately, say, send this test, and then you can actually change the trajectory. You, know, you don't have to. So you, this test might allow you to decide when to stop one-to-one -one ratio, and after one-to-one -one ratio, how you should approach coagulopathy. That might be helpful. Uh, my name is Yosuke Masura. I also came from Japan. Uh, you showed uh, hemodilution and the impact on the blood firmness. Yes. Um, change for any So I think in vivo it's difficult to estimate, but if you just do you know in vitro hemodilution, uh, it, it's reasonably linear, yes. But I think in vivo it's very difficult to predict because I think platelets are dynamic and sometimes it gets um, uh, absorbed into the spleen and comes out at the different temperatures. So I think sometimes it's really difficult. But if you just look at the fibrinogen, uh, it's a reasonably linear relationship. So, um, you know, many times in the ICU we're unable to acquire these, right. these tests, as you mentioned. Um, just for the <coughs> sake of everyone, you, know, you mentioned hemodilution. We know clinically, you know, at the bedside, without these tests, it's a major factor in continued bleed. 
Is there, have you identified in, in your work or your reading any sort of um, objective amount of fluid, crystalloids, blood products, anything um, that really helps us uh, say, okay, with X amount of this type of fluid, we can start uh, identifying fluid dilution as a mm -hmm. major player in mm -hmm. Oh, you mean that specific amount of fluid that you use to define hemodilution? Oh, I see. Yeah, so when you say, I think once you lose, you know, one blood volume, I think you're going to be getting there. But, you know, since you are replacing at the same time, um, the exact assessment, I think, you know, I actually look at the baseline FIPTEM and I see the drop of the FIPTEM. So that allows me to actually calculate what percentage. Now, you know, in my current practice, you know, I do not give as much fluid as I used to be. So I, you know, give probably less than 400 cc's for the whole case from just IV fluid you know, standpoint, you know, we still give an infusion of uh, drugs and we give cardioplegia and so forth. Um, you know, so I think you really need a baseline point, a reference point to assess hemodilution. We really cannot say uh, how much fluid will cause this much percent drop in the FIPTEM. I, I think it's very difficult to predict because maybe endothelial barriers are broken and they're, they're extravasating. I do not know. So answer, I do not know. And can you comment on the effects of temperature? You alluded to it briefly on, on findings of uh, the, the thrombolytic The temperature effect? Okay, so uh, once you um, go down in the temperature, of course, there's a slowing of the clot formation, and probably you know twenty, thirty percent, you know maybe forty percent drop once you hit about thirty degrees. So you see that effect. But since we are rewarming in the you know the, rewarming the blood sample, we may not see the effect on the rotem result itself. All right, so if we adjust the temperature on the rotem and then run it at the exact temperature of the patient had, you're going to see the slowing of the clot formation. So that's one of the issues. Sometimes, you know, we have a chest wide open and it's 20 degrees in the room and, you know, chest inside the chest is so cold and then surgeon said there's no clot. Well, it's too cold. So, so sometimes we had to close it and then rewarm, and you know you see the clot formation. So there might be a dissociation due to exact you know comment temperature effect. We may miss that on the road temp. Yeah. What other areas do you see this kind of creeping into in um, other parts of the hospital or other disease processes? I, I think uh, postpartum hemorrhage is definitely one thing and maybe uh, large spine cases that might be quite useful. And I think pediatric population might be also good because, you know, blood sample can be like one cc, you can run a few tests. You know, each run is about 300 microliter, so you can at least run three different tests with one cc of blood samples. Yes? Um, on one of your prior slides, you said that platelets, with this system, you can sometimes find it hard to detect abnormalities with von Willebrand factors right. and things like that. So kind of trying to carry this over and transition this over to a more medical population with liver disease, kidney disease, does, in your experience, does it 
lose some of its reliability with the circulating you know, inhibitors that go on with those? Right. So liver patient per se is an interesting population. You have a baseline thrombocytopenia, so signal looks bad you know, on extent, but they don't bleed at all. So, you know, that's a difficult point. Again, the antithrombin deficiency cannot be detected. So liver patients do have a lower antithrombin and they seem to balance, rebalance it. And then we may not be able to detect it. Now, if they come for liver transplantation, we can still use FIPTEM number as a guide for cryo or platelet transfusion. So it's still useful, but only in a dynamic state, not in a steady state. Thank you.